when we sing about the blood of Christ and what it's done for us, it's a holy moment. You know, there's this, um, my personal time in the Word right now has been in Revelation and uh, almost all the way through, cover to cover now, uh, with the, uh, the long read I've been doing through the Scripture. Um, and there was, there's this part where they break the seventh seal. And it says, after the seventh seal was broken, there was silence for a half an hour. I'm just kidding. We're not going to sit here for a half hour. <laughs> but sometimes holy moments require just quiet, don't they? It was funny. After that, after the uh, singing about the blood of Christ, I was like, oh, man, I don't want to really get up. I just want to sit there and think through the blood of Christ. Um, last night at our house, uh, dinner was a little bit of a somber occasion. Any guesses why? You know, Daddy's not going to be around for the next few weeks. And uh, so it was a little bit of a summer occasion. I wanted to do something special uh, for the family, for Jen and the boys. Uh, so I was going to take them out to eat. But Evan yesterday wasn't feeling too hot. So um, we had, a, I, yeah, I went and got food and brought it back. You know, big night for the family. Got a McDonald's. And, <laughs> and uh, we chilled around the table and had um, a, a really cool time. But it was an emotional time because, uh, you know, the boys are thinking, this is it. You know, like I'm not going to see, not going to have dinner with daddy for a little while. And uh, I'm going to be uh, with a, a number of of people, obviously, overseas on the other side of the world for a couple of weeks on a missions trip. But I, it got me thinking as I was preparing for the message today. Um, imagine if that meal, that last meal, um, you know, if what we're being separated by is not thousands of miles across the globe and not just a 12-hour span of time zone difference and not just three weeks or two, two and a half weeks. But imagine if what, was gonna, what we were staring down the barrel of was actually death, you know? And some of you have been there. Some of you have had meals with people who you knew, this is either my last meal with them or close to it. And you know how much that hurts, you know? And this night where Jesus has this Last Supper, uh, it's, what's amazing about it is that he's not only staring down death, but the people who are the closest to him in this entire world, who he's poured his life into, they're just so oblivious, aren't they? You know how painful that must be? You've had moments where you're going through something really difficult, and it seems like the people close to you can't feel how much it hurts right now. And that hurts. You know, when they can't feel it. But, I mean, Jesus is going to his death, and, and they're just oblivious. But it's worse than them being oblivious. It's far worse than that. It's that they're entirely self-consumed. I mean, the whole meal, you know how it goes. All they can think about is themselves. And who's going to be first in the kingdom? They're like jockeying for position and everything. Just wildly inappropriate. Wildly inappropriate for, for the context. And they can't get it. And our hearts bleed if we really get ourselves there and we think about what it must have been like for Jesus on that night. And we have this tradition here, um, part of the, the tradition we come from, and, and it's that at the, at the end of Lent, when we get to Holy Week, on, uh, the, on actually on um, the beginning of Holy Week at Palm Sunday, on a Sunday night, there will be a group of men who are hanging out in this room right here, and there will be a group of ladies who are hanging out in that room back there. 
And there will be basins full of water that will be on the ground in front of chairs. And there will be people sitting in the chairs and there will be other people on their knees with a towel washing the feet of the people who are sitting in the chairs. What an archaic practice. Wildly inappropriate. And this is why, is because we realize that on this night, when Jesus was not just leaving for three weeks, but when Jesus was going to his death and no one else in the room was aware and no one else was focused on him, Jesus has this spectacular perspective. He doesn't mope. He doesn't look for self-pity. He says, I have eagerly awaited to share this moment with you. Yesterday, um, there was a couple times when I was going through the day and I was like running like crazy trying to get stuff done. I still have to pack a little bit. <laughs> Our van leaves at 2 o'clock this afternoon, so I'm going to jet after the service, okay? So don't expect to see me. But I was like jamming stuff in, trying to get everything done and everything. But there were these moments where I'm looking around, and I see the boys, and I'm like, I'm not going to see them for a few weeks. I really need to make sure that I just, whatever's going on, I just put it aside, and I spend some time focused, you know? And we hang out. And so I got a little bit of time with with each of them doing something different. But there's this, there's this thing that happens with Christ in the, in, in this moment where they are in, in, in such a state that he shouldn't want to be with them. And knowing what's going on, he should want the attention to be on him. And yet he realizes this is, this is a sacred moment. This is a special moment. And all he wants to do is pour himself into them. You know, he wants them to experience his love. And so you see Jesus like looking for the ways to care for them in this last moment. I mean, how creative of Jesus. Who would have thought in that moment to grab a basin and to wash feet? I mean, half the reason that the guys didn't do it wasn't only because they wouldn't have done it because they were too proud, but they just couldn't even think of it. You know, but Jesus is so looking for opportunities to love and serve that he's creative in finding ways to care for him. You know what I mean? And so you're like, ah, here's a way that I can show him I love him. And he just wants to shock them with love because he wants to leave them with this sense that all I want is you guys. That's all I want, you know? And so he's on his knees and, and he memorializes that. He says, so as I've washed your feet, now you wash one another's feet. So we kind of take that literally and we do that because we believe this is a picture of the love of Christ being just so served to us. And what happens even more in this meal, of course, is that um, Jesus has this piece of art that he develops and he creates a piece of art that gets institutionalized. And he institutionalizes it right there in that moment. And it's supposed to be a tool of remembrance. This, these bracelets that we're handing out right now uh, for prayer, you know, these are tools of remembrance. The whole reason why you get a, a, a bracelet today is so that every time you see it, we think, oh, yeah, the team over there in Indonesia, because none of us are uh, perfect at remembering all of that. So we need little tools and sticky notes on our mirrors or whatever on our steering wheel or whatever. And this is one of those things that helps us remember. Well, Jesus in this moment, he creates a, a, an artistic picture that he institutionalizes, memorializes, set up as a remembrance for them to remember this night, this night. That's what it's for, because this night, this moment, it tells the whole story. It shows the whole thing that while they are completely and totally self-consumed and unaware, he is pouring himself out on behalf of them. And so he's like, I need to capture this moment because they need to understand how this relationship's going to work. 
And, and in order for them to understand how the relationship's going to work, we need a picture. And they didn't have an iPhone to take it out and video the whole thing going on so they could remember. And I, what he did was, is he took a bread and he broke a piece of bread and broke it. And he took a glass of wine and had them drink it. And he told them how this thing works. And he says, as often as you eat and drink, which for those of us, especially in America, is pretty often, do this in remembrance of me. Remember this moment. Remember how this works. Remember how the whole thing goes. And so that's what it's about. So John 14 um, is where it picks up. John 14, verse 22. Um, and uh, I'm actually going to have you stand with me in honor of God's word here. And th- th- it's supposed to go from 22 down to 52. It, that's our, actually our text for this week. And that's what you'll be working through in the book and Sunday school and with your triads and all of that. But I'm actually only going to read the first few verses today. And uh, we're going we're gonna to keep it tight today. So um, Mark 14, starting in verse 22. And as they were eating, he took bread. And after, after blessing it, broke it and gave it to them and said, Take. This is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank of it. And he said to them, This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Truly I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. May God add rich blessings to the reading of his word. You can have a seat. Let's pray. If maybe um, the most intimate moment that we read in the scriptures, God. If it's not it, it's certainly way up there. And we just ask that, God, this would not be today um, just a reading of an intimate moment. This wouldn't be just a teaching of a covenant. But God, this would be like sitting with our spouse and looking back at our wedding video. That this would be like flipping through the pictures of that awesome family vacation that we had. That God, today, as we watch that this would be a moment where we remember, where we experience, and where we feel the fullness of what it is that you've done for us. And we ask it in the name of Jesus. Amen. Life is a mess. It's a total mess, isn't it? Babies cry. (laughs) Parents don't get sleep. (laughs) Life is totally... A disaster in a lot of ways. It's fun and great, but it's never clean and easy, and it's a total mess, which means this. It means that any time we make a covenant inside of life, that that covenant has to account for the fact that life is messy. So therefore, love has to be messy, 
It has to join the mess. We can't form a, we can't step outside of life and outside of our world and form a covenant and say, all right, this is perfect and ideal and then try to get it to fit back into life. It doesn't work. We're in the midst of the messiness and the madness. So any agreement, any covenant, any pact, any, any time we get together and say, we're going to be like this together, it has to take into account the fact that we're all screwed up. How are we going to deal with that when it comes up? Because it's going to come up right now, you know? And then again, and, and so every covenant needs to take that into account. It has to. And it requires sacrifice, which is why when we stand up in front of the altar, if two, two people are getting married, we say, we, when, when we're saying our vows to each other, we say, for richer or for poorer. Say it louder, man. You're like, you're like I don't want to say it. I already said it. <laughs> in sickness and in health. Yeah. And it goes, I mean, any covenant requires these things, right? Until death do us part. And so we're saying that on both sides of the equation, we have to specify it because the covenant understands that we live in a broken world and we're a mess in the good times and the bad. You know, when you're great and when you're a total pain, I'm committing to love you, to pour into you, not just to stick with you, but to give to you. And that's the idea of a covenant in the midst of a broken world. Love in a messy world requires in some ways being a mess and becoming a mess, you know, and that's, that's what it looks like. Have you ever gotten really passionate about something that you thought like, this is not okay. My company is not managed well. And I am like, I have a vision for how this can work better. And so you dive in with great desire to improve this thing. Or you look at family relationships and you're like, this isn't working. Look at the way everybody's relating to each other. But then there's something wells up inside of you. This could be so much better. We can make this work. And so you, you go with great passion to try to fix it. Or you go to a church and you're like, that's not what the Bible says. This is not how it's supposed to work. And you dive in and say, we're gonna, we're gonna see this through, you know? Or, or maybe it's the government, you know? <laughs> and you're like, man, I have a great picture of how the country should be, you know? And there's many people who've gone into politics with great ambition, you know? What happens, of course, for us is that we wish that when we go, went into those situations to fix things, that we could just ride in on our white horse and, and change it and fix it. But what ends up happening is it ends up not being that simple, right? And almost every time we can't fix things as simply as we thought because when we were just looking at it cerebrally, it looked like a bunch of pieces of a puzzle. And we were like, oh, I got this. I understand how it fits together. And then you get into the mess and you go to fit the pieces of the puzzle together. And we realize the pieces are like deformed and they're bent and they're melted or whatever. And they don't fit right anymore. And everything that was supposed to come together just doesn't work the way that I thought it was going to. And everything gets, it's just this one little thing, like the, the financial thing didn't work out or like, if I could just get this person to hear this in this way and, you know, but this person was hurt and so that's not working and it, there's just, it never quite fits and then it doesn't work and it's like, ah, and then something happens and what happens is whatever it is that we're trying to fix requires compromise of us, some sort of compromise. And, uh, and we always have a difficult time knowing when to give and when not to give. 
And it just starts to get more and more convoluted in our heads. And then this other thing starts to happen where we really have a beat on it and we're going after it. And then we start to realize part of the problem of why this isn't working is not just because all the pieces don't fit together, but because I'm one of the pieces and I don't fit together. And I came into this situation, this family or this business or whatever, trying to to be an instrument of positive change. But I have a problem sustaining my own stability, you know? And I, I came into this thing with great hopes, but I got lazy or I got distracted or I got selfish or I got whatever, you know? And I realized that in this, pro- it, it, maybe I didn't even get there. I just came to realize that that's part of who I am. And then I started to realize... Part of the problem with my business and with my family and with my church and with my country is that I'm in it, you know? And then we're like, wow, how are we going to fix this problem, you know? Well, <laughs> Jesus is uh, the only thing that can help us out because when we realize that we're sinful, when we realize that we're part of the problem, it brings us to this spot where we where we recognize that The answer comes from outside of me, not from inside of me. And I need a savior. Turn with me to Hebrews chapter 13, please. And keep your finger in it while I say this. I want you to picture um, there's a war that's being waged. And the one kingdom is waging the war. And they're the good kingdom. And they know the war that they're fighting, it's it's for a good cause, you know. And... uh, and, and they believe that if we win, we're accomplishing something uh, that, that's worthwhile. But the, the commander of the army has these people who he loves, who are uh, great soldiers. And he cherishes them, but he knows the only way to win this battle is to send this group of people to this side of the battle. And all the army is going to shift focus to them while he flanks them on the other side with the rest of his military. But the problem is he knows that even though that's the only way for it for us to win, that I'm going to have to put people who I love in harm's way and blood will be shed. That is a very difficult decision for someone to make when someone else's lives are at stake. And this is one of those moments where it's like I'm trying to fix a problem, you know? And I'm trying in my strength to do everything I can to fix a problem. But I know that any covenant that's made in this earth, anytime there's an agreement, anytime I'm trying to accomplish anything, that blood must be shed. It has to happen. You know, the the, the question is just where is the blood going to be shed? Where is the compromise going to happen? Because it always happens. Someone's going to get hurt. Someone's going to have to bleed. It's not just sweat and tears. It's also blood, you know, and it's going to hurt. And so this commander has to decide, is it okay for me to make this sacrifice with these people in order to accomplish these ends? And there's this amazing picture of Jesus who makes a covenant with us. And the thing is, is that Jesus becomes part of the mess with us. He dives in and he takes on human flesh and he becomes part of the mess. But by Jesus becoming part of the mess, it doesn't mean that Jesus compromised himself, but it does mean that Jesus became messy. And let's look at how. Hebrews 13, starting in verse 9. Do not be led away by diverse and strange teachings, for it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace. You hear that? Think about that phrase for a second. It's good for the heart to be strengthened by grace. 
What is grace? That's God's divine favor for us, his gift to us, unmerited favor. We don't deserve anything from God, but he gives it to us. And when God gives us freely, it's good for my heart to be strengthened by that thought. Don't, it says, don't follow any false teachings. The teaching that I need to hang on to is the teaching of grace. Anything that teaches me that it starts with me is not grace. When it starts with God, it's grace, and that's what I'm strengthening, okay? Not by foods which have not benefited those who devoted those devoted to them. So if I'm devoted to food, it doesn't benefit me, okay? Verse 10, we have an altar from which those who serve the tent, that's the temple or whatever, have no right to eat. For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into holy places by high priests as a sacrifice for sin are burned outside the camp. So Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. I'm just going to stop there for a second. See, this is the difference between our commander. Is he knows that in order for there to be space for the covenant to work out, it's going to get messy and it's going to require sacrifice and it's going to require bloodshed. He realizes that in this messed up world, you can't fix a problem unless someone bleeds for it. The only difference is, is that this commander decides that he's the one to bleed for it, right? And so this is what our response is. Verse 13, therefore, let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach he endured. For here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. Through him, then, let us continually offer up a sacrifice. So we have a sacrifice that we offer up, and this is what it is, a sacrifice of praise to God. That is the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. All right. Every covenant that God ever makes with his people required blood because everything was messy. So let's take a quick look at it, and then we're going to close it up. Okay, we're not going to go real long today. I just want to review how this blood thing works because blood is a big deal. We fell in the garden. There was the moment. There was that tree and we were told not to eat from it. You can picture a little white angel uh, with his wings on our one shoulder saying, God told you not to eat that. The rest of the fruit's good. And then picture a little pitchfork with the horns or whatever. This is exactly how the Bible describes it. (laughs) It was a lie. You're supposed to laugh or else I feel condemned. So um, don't take that seriously. Don't quote me on that one. And, and there's this like debate going on in our minds. And, and the debate is whether we'll listen to God or whether we'll listen to the other voice, you know, because we get to choose. This isn't the choice that the enemy gets to make. It's not the choice that God gets to make. This is the choice that we get to make. And our choice is who will we listen to? Who will we follow? Who will we worship? And in the moment, we decided who we would follow, who we would trust, who we would listen to. And we decided to listen to the deceiver, the one who said, this will be better than what God says. Say, I want better, (laughs) you know. (laughs) What could be better than Garden of Eden? I don't know, but I want it, you know. And we wanted it. And so we followed. And what happened was, is a shackle got put on us. But before this, as the shackles got put on us, something else happened, is we were painfully aware of our own nastiness. Right. And so God had to cover our own shame in the in the New Testament. We're told that God covers the guilt of our shame. The guilt of our shame, which means that like we feel guilt because we are ashamed. 
You know, we can feel ashamed because we're guilty, but we can also have guilt because we're ashamed. Because what happens when I'm ashamed, when I'm in a relationship with someone and all of a sudden I'm ashamed of some action that I've done, what do I tend to do in that relationship? I tend to pull away from the relationship or I try to put up some false sense, some facade, which means I'm separating myself from that relationship, which the whole guilt with God is that we begin to separate ourselves from God because of our shame. Because we are painfully aware now of the nastiness of myself and my unfaithfulness to God. And so I have shame. And so God needs to cover our shame. And so how did God cover Adam and Eve? What did he use to cover them? Skins. So the sheep, the blood is shed to cover the shame. Round two. Okay, so so now we decided to follow the deceiver, and of course, you know how this goes. You know that at first, the first hit's free, you know? And then it requires this of us. We have to start paying this much. And then after that, it's going to cost quality time with my family, and then my performance at work, and then so on and so forth. And eventually, it costs me my whole life in order to serve this thing that at first seemed free and great. And what ends up happening to humanity is as we gave ourselves over to the enemy, he began to require back of us. And he said, you owe me. I'll do you, I'll do you this favor, but now you're going to owe me. You know? You hear like Corleone, right? I'll do you a favor. You know? And he, he, he gives you this help, but then, then what? Now what do I owe? And this is the thing with Satan is he deceives us. And, oh, yeah, this is great, you know? But it costs us. It costs us. And in the end, he will pull our card. And always what it costs the most, idolatry, um, always costs us our children. That's what it costs. And that's the way it was in the scriptures. You get to, you get to, uh, by the time, uh, Abraham's around, there's this, uh, God who's being worshiped in the promised land called Moloch. And Moloch is this false God who requires the sacrifice of the children. And so they have to sacrifice their kids. Literally, they go and they, they sacrifice their kids into the fire. And so here comes God to Abraham and he says, I'm done with this. Man will not be slave just to these false gods. I'm going to call out a people to myself. I will break the allegiance to the deceiver and I will call people and sanctify them and make them holy and they will be mine again. So Abraham, I'm calling you out. I'm forming a covenant. Your offspring are going to be my people. Go over there to the promised land, to the land of Canaan, to the land of Moloch. And he does. And then he says, build me an altar. And he does. And then he says, put your son on it. And he does. And he says, give your allegiance to me instead of to Moloch. Raise your knife. And he does. And then God holds back the knife. And he gives him a sacrificial ram. Because there must be blood. The bondage has to be broken to the false gods who we've served. But in this moment, Abraham doesn't pay the price. Instead, this ram does. And so God sets him apart. Now, he has covered our shame. And now... He has broken the bondage of the false God. And then it moves forward a little bit after that. And you see people who are sitting in Egypt in slavery. And God goes to call these people out. And there's this moment where all the plagues are coming down. And there's this wicked, wicked thing blowing through the town that night. Death. And so here comes death spirit. 
And he says, you want to escape death, you got to kill a sheep, a lamb, and you got to paint its blood over a doorpost. Isn't that nasty when you think about it? I mean, imagine, like, just get there for a second. You're going outside after the service today, and we're all grabbing a lamb, and we're pulling its neck back, and we're cutting its throat, and pouring the blood into a bucket, dipping a paintbrush into the bucket, and painting it above the door frames of our homes. It's messy. It's messy. It's nasty. And so they paint blood over their door frames. And that night, those who trusted God and painted the blood over their door frames, the death spirit that blew through that town, it took every kid again, because that's what it does. Sacrificed them, except for those who had the blood. And those who had the blood, the spirit of death passed over. And they walk out into the wilderness. And God writes on that stone a new covenant for them and said, here's my covenant. And in that covenant, this is the rules of our relationship, for better or for worse, for richer or for poorer. Here are the vows. This is how we do it. However, I recognize the fact that you are going to fail openly. You are going to be unfaithful to me. You are not going to fulfill your vows. So there is provision inside of this covenant for what you do when you break the rules. When you break the relationship. And what is the provision? That every time you mess up, there's a sacrifice. Because something else has to shed its blood in order to redeem it and to wash it. That's why the scriptures say, without the shedding of blood, there's no remission of sin. And so now our shame has been covered by the skin. And the bondage to the false god has been broken off by the sacrificial lamb. And now here, when I fail in the relationship, in the covenant, there's actually provision for me to be washed every time and to be forgiven for what I've done wrong because of the consistent sacrificial system, which causes over and over again, sacrifice, 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 because my sin's ongoing. Then we get here to John or to Mark 14, and we watch Jesus with this very meal, this Passover meal. And there he is, holding the unleavened bread and holding the cup, remembering when they painted the doorposts, remembering the covenant of old. And Jesus says, it's not enough. We need a new covenant. Because even though the skin covered your shame, and even though the bondage to the demonic mind control that you've been under is broken, And even though every time you mess up, you can be cleansed because of this sacrificial system, there is something still missing. And it's deadpan obvious in this room (laughs) that we are still not free. Because we might be free of shame, we might be free of the demonic control, and we might be free of the guilt, but there is one thing we are very much not free of in this upper room still, and that is free of our self-obsession. Because here I am going to a cross, and all my best friends can't think about anything except themselves. We need a new covenant. One that actually sets us free. One that sets us free from all of it. One that sets me free from myself. Because that's what's actually killing me right now. It's not God killing me. He's not judging me. There's sacrifice that's made. You know? He can cover me with that sacrificial system, but I'm not getting free from myself, the original problem. 
the one who chose the deceiver. And I keep choosing to be deceived because my heart has turned nasty and I need a new covenant that writes the law on my heart, that takes out the heart of stone and gives me a heart of flesh, that makes my heart pound for God and pound for love, and that makes me look like this one I've been following for the last three years. Something needs to happen. I need a new covenant. And so he gives it to him. And this is what he says. He says one word of what they're supposed to do. Take. Take. That's it. Take. Not give. Not do. Take. Take this. In remembrance of me. Because there's only one person in this room who's a fountain of love. And it's not Peter, even though he keeps telling me that it is. You know? Because there's only one person tonight who's actually going to bleed. I'm In, in about ten minutes, we're going to go out to the garden, and I'm going to pray so hard that blood is going to come out of my pores, and you're going to fall asleep. And a few minutes after that, they're going to come into the garden, and you're going to kiss me, and there's still going to be wine on your mouth that represents my blood, and you're going to kiss my lips with it, and they're going to come and take me away. And then we're going to go, and I'm going to be on trial, and you're going to be sitting there watching what's going on, and you're going to deny that you even know me. And you, you're going to be in that place where they all come to get me, and you're going to run naked out of here because you're so ashamed and so scared. And all of you are going to scatter. And when you do, you're going to realize this covenant that you and I have in this messy world, it doesn't make any sense and it doesn't work if it in any way at all depends on you because I guarantee you, you're going to blow it. So let's just make it very clear that this covenant is not based on your faithfulness. This covenant is based on my blood. And I'm going to shed it so every time you're unfaithful, I can still love you. And every time you've messed up, you can drink deep. And I'm not going anywhere. I'm not leaving. I'm not getting mad. I'm not turning and running. I am here for the long haul. And it's not based on you. It's only based on me. So that whole like measuring yourself and trying to prove yourself and the bravado Peter of trying to say you're going to hang in there till the end, all that, it's time to let it all drop. You can't be that guy. There's only one person in this room who can be that person. And tonight, I will bleed for you. I will bleed for you. Take. Receive. The covenant, the marriage, the thing that's different about God and his marriage with us, the church, as opposed to our marriage that we have with our spouses, is that we say, for better, for worse, richer, poorer, sickness and health, until death do us part. And the difference is, this covenant with Jesus, it doesn't end at death. It starts at death. It's activated by death. That's what makes the covenant work. Because remember, what happens here, not only is he going to have to die in order for this to work, but the whole thing that he's trying to offer us is death to self. I've been consumed by myself. I've been a slave to myself. And he's finally offering me a way out. To die. What's being offered in this covenant, honestly, fully, truly, is he saying, Tim, man, you have been stuck on yourself for how long? <laughs> you know, you've been stuck on it. And I, all I can do right now is say, you want to die so bad to yourself, don't you? And you can't do it. You're so frustrated with yourself. 
And I'm giving you a way to die. I'm giving you a way to die. To say, I can't, I can't do this. I can't depend on myself anymore. I no longer live. I, 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 all I can do is say, I'm not the impressive one. I'm not the righteous one. I'm not the faithful one. I am the unfaithful one. I am the nasty one. I'm the ugly one. I'm the, I'm the whatever. I'm all those things. And once I say that, he says, welcome. Tim can die and you no longer have to experience all that shame about yourself because in me, you will live again and you will have a new name. And that name will be full of beauty and it'll be full of righteousness and it'll be full of my love. And if you will receive that today, that new covenant, then welcome. So today, this morning, if you woke up in a drunken stupor from last night, you know, if this morning you woke up and you looked at yourself in the mirror and you're like, I wasted my day yesterday. I wasn't as productive as I should have been at work this week. I said things to people that I shouldn't have said, even to those I care about. I got stuck in those old patterns that I hate about myself. I spent money in ways I shouldn't have. There were plenty of opportunities to care for people, and I missed those opportunities, and I blew it all over the place. Well, welcome to the table. Welcome to the Last Supper. Because here and now, in our brokenness, is the best time to actually understand how this covenant works. That it's not about me, it's about Him. And I can't receive and take unless I break and die. <laughs> and the only time it's hard to receive the gospel is when I still am depending on me. That's when it's hard to receive the gospel. This kind of gospel scares religious people. It scares us because we think that our self-improvement and our sanctification is at least in a little bit based on our shame and our guilt. If I feel bad and I feel ashamed, then I work a little bit harder to be a little bit better. But the gospel says, uh, you really need to let go of that. I already cleansed it all. You cannot make yourself any more perfect than I already have. Otherwise, you're saying my cross is incomplete. Your job today is not to self-improve. It's not to sanctify yourself. You have one job today, one job and one alone, to take, to receive. You're cleansed. You're forgiven. All right. This is a covenant. It's a marriage. Some of you have understood the gospel for a long time. Some of you have worked at having a relationship with God. But there's also some here today who may have never actually said your marriage vows with Jesus, so to speak, entered into the covenant. There may be some today who don't have that moment where it's like, you know, covenants usually have a moment. There's a journey in a relationship, but covenants have a moment. And our moment was 2,000 years ago at a last supper and on a cross. You know, that's, that's the real moment. But us receiving that and taking that is on us. And so today, if you haven't stepped in to that, if you haven't had that covenant, I would urge you to. I would urge you to. To say that today on March 16th, 2014, is a day when I said, I can't do this. But he did do this. And I'm just going to receive it today. I had this awesome thing happen yesterday. I went to a store. I was headed over to the gym, and I went to a store to get something. And this guy who was in the store, um, the store cleared out when I walked in. I thought I was like in the Wild West and I had guns on my hips or something. I didn't know what was going on. No, seriously, the store just went empty and I was looking for something and the guy started talking to me and I was in a, I was in a rush because I was getting ready for everything, you know, and I didn't want to talk to him. 
But he asked me what I was getting, and I ended up telling him about the trip. And he's like, what do you do? And I told him I was pastor, and he was like, boom, just dropped. He's like, my life is terrible right now. And just starts talking to me. And I was getting so annoyed because I wanted to leave. And he was holding me up. And then God was communicating to me, like, are you seriously not going to engage this guy right now? And so finally, the guy was like mid-sentence, and I was so convicted. I finally just said, like, he was in mid-sentence. And I'm like, do you believe in God? And like, cut him off. And he was like, yeah. And I'm like, do you know God? And he's like, what do you mean? I'm like, do you want his help in all that you're going through? Because it sounds like there's something inside of you that's yearning for more. And for an hour, he and I sat and talked in that store, and not one person walked through the door. And at the end of the time, I asked him if he wanted to make a covenant with God in that moment and receive Jesus as his Savior and as his Lord. And he said, yes, I do. And we prayed in that store, and then he wrapped his arms around me and wept. This dude who was way bigger than me. Because that guy didn't know anything and his life was going the wrong way, and which is exactly the right moment to receive Jesus. And it had nothing to do with me. I was in very much the wrong frame of mind. But God didn't care. <laughs> because he's still not holding any of that stuff against us. He wants us to join. And he wants us to be a part. There's provision. There's blood. It's already been shed. It's not our blood. It's not our sweat. It's not our tears. It's all his. And he just asked us to join in. So have you stepped across the line? Because this dude did it yesterday, you know? And you can do it today. And if you have, then you can remember again. Because there's only one sacrifice that's left. There's only one other sacrifice that's allowed. And it's called a sacrifice of praise. Where we thank God for what he's already done. We can't self-improve. We can only praise all we can do. Let's pray.